welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is David M. Driesen, University Professor of Law at Syracuse University College of Law. We will discuss his article, The Unitary Executive Theory in Comparative Context, which will be published in the Hastings Law Journal. So welcome to the show, David. Thank you. Yeah, I'm so glad that uh, your colleague Darone uh, recommended your article to me. It was really interesting, timely, and a little terrifying all at the same time. So I'm really interested to talk about it. Yeah, it is uh, pretty terrifying. I'm sorry to be writing this, but it's something, it's important. (laughs) Yeah. Well, so for listeners who might not be lawyers or law professors, or at the very least, but might not be thinking about constitutional theory all the time. I wonder if you could spend a moment just explaining to people what the unitary executive theory is and sort of what it argues about the nature of the executive branch and specifically the presidency. Sure. Uh, In a nutshell, the unitary executive theory uh, is a theory that the Constitution gives the president sole control over the entire executive branch government, including the right to fire uh, federal government officials for political reasons. And this is in sharp contrast to our actual practice where we have independent agencies where they, they can't be removed except for cause and traditions of prosecutorial independence and so on. So it's a theory about constitutional law that grants immense power to the president and uh, prohibits Congress from protecting people from removal. Is the unitary executive theory a sort of vision of the constitutional order that's actually been implemented by courts or in practice, or is it something that's sort of out there, but not yet the kind of guiding or uh, uh, controlling controlling law? And and sort of why is it so important at this historical moment? Well, uh, all right, those are a lot of questions. I'll start. It's not controlling law right now. Uh, The Supreme Court has never held that uh, the president uh, has the right to to remove all federal officials for political reasons and that the the Congress can't do anything about that. Uh, It is, however, been it has been very influential in practice the executive branch of our government is going that way. I mean, you've noticed that President Trump has removed a lot of people for no good reason and even to prevent them from implementing the law. And what my article argues about why it's important is that if you look around the world and you see countries where elected leaders destroy the rule of law and destroy democracy, the way they do it is by shifting the Constitution in ways that are very analogous to the unitary executive theory. They, in effect, give this head of state uh, uncontrolled power over the entire executive branch, uncontrolled by Congress or the courts. And then they just fire all the neutral experts and put in place uh, servants of the regime, and then all sorts of awful things start to happen. Mm-hmm. Well, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about kind of the nature of the unitary executive argument. I mean, is it like 
a pragmatic argument that having a unitary executive or sort of enforcing unitary executive principles is a good thing and therefore we should want that to happen? Or is it more like a theoretical kind of constitutional argument that it's sort of constitutionally required that we have a unitary executive? Yeah, it's more of a theoretical argument. The Unitarians, as we call them, not, not talking about Unitarian religion, but the proponents of the Unitary Executive Theory, these Unitarians uh, claim that the original intent of the framers is that the president should have this complete control. And it's an interesting thing because actually Alexander Hamilton said that uh, the president would not be able to remove executive branch officials except with the consent of the Senate. Now, the Supreme Court uh, disagrees with that a number of years ago, but that you know, by some accounts, that was the original intent. And, uh, you know, Alexander Hamilton uh, was no was a proponent of strong executive power, but once the Constitution was actually passed, had some compromises in it. And the only cause in the Constitution that authorizes removal uh, is the one that authorizes Senate removal in the case of impeachment. So it's not a crazy theory. Yeah, I did find your use of the term Unitarians um, rather amusing, especially because I imagine that the Venn diagram of Unitarians in the religious sense and Unitarians in the uh, unitary executive sense doesn't have a whole lot of overlap. No, it doesn't. It, it's not. I'm not the only one who uses it that way. It's a pretty common way of referring to proponents of the unitary executive theory in the literature. Mm, I, 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 I liked it. Um, it was interesting. <laughs> um, well, so maybe you could talk a little bit more specifically uh, about why the unitary executive theory is so important in the context of removal. Why do you think it's tended to come up in that context? And what do proponents of the unitary executive theory say about, you know, how that theory or how that concept of presidential power ought to affect the ability of the president to remove uh, executive branch officials from office? Well, the last time it came up was in a a constitutional challenge to the statute creating the uh, independent counsel. And this was a post-Watergate reform so that high-level government wrongdoing could be investigated. And the majority said it's fine that the special counsel could only be removed for malfeasance in office, for cause. Uh, But Scalia wrote this blistering dissent that says the president has all the executive authority, and that means he gets to fire anybody he wants. So that's the context in which it it came up. And it's also a rationale against the administrative agencies because our actual practice has been that while the president always has some influence over agencies, a lot of authority is delegated to administrative agencies. They um, are not uh, always completely under the control of the president, although in practice they usually follow what he wants. Um, but this is so it's part of an anti-regulatory thing. It's a it's a darling of uh, conservative jurists and some conservative scholars. Um, and that's the way it's come up. Now it's coming up again because actually there's a challenge pending in the Supreme Court to the independence of the head of the Consumer Financial Protection Board, the agency Elizabeth Warren set up. Um, and uh, they're saying, nope, president has sole control, so you can't uh, appoint this guy for 
long terms and, and, and insulate him from political removal. So your argument um, really relies on kind of, in, at least on my reading, more kind of pragmatic observations about, you know, what we want to do to avoid problems, specifically sort of problems of autocracy and, and kind of demise of democracy and so on uh, in in relation to executive power. Uh, but as you noted earlier, the kind of unitary executive argument is more kind of couched in theory than in pragmatics. What do you think of the theoretical argument? I mean, do you think that there is a sort of uh, bulletproof case for it? Or are there reasons to think that maybe the kind of theoretical case for the unitary executive theory is a little overstated? I think it's overstated. Uh, the, the fact is that at, at the founding, the only statements we have about removal authority are Hamilton's statements that the Senate has to consent to removal of officers. And those statements are made in the Federalist Papers that are supposed to influence the ratifiers. Now, it's we the people, the people who ratified the constitutions whose intentions should matter, and in fact do matter according to the Unitarian theorists. Um, And there's no evidence that they thought that the executive power included a removal authority. In fact, they all define the executive power, which is what the Unitarians rely on, as the power to execute the law. Well, when you remove an official, you're interrupting the implementation of the law. You're not implementing the law. So the best that can be said about that is, well, it's useful to be able to fire people to implement the law. But there's a, there's a clause in the Constitution called the Necessary and Proper Clause that says that Congress gets to do what's necessary and proper to help executive branch officials carry out their duties. So it should be a discretionary Decision, decision of Congress. So I think it's quite weak. The, pri- the primary evidence these guys rely on is actually a debate in the first Congress, where a, a lot, a number of the framers did support a unitary executive theory, but a number of them did not. So the, the evidence is quite mixed. And in that context, I think there's room to take in, into account uh, the dangers this kind of approach poses to democracy. While we're no strangers to the abuse of executive authority in the United States, thankfully, you know, it hasn't, at least to this date, gotten as bad here as it might have in in other places. Um, and you really take advantage of that disjuncture in, in your paper by pointing to kind of illustrative or instructive uh, observations about what's happened in other countries in relation to um, kind of abuse or overextension of executive power, uh, specifically uh, Hungary, Poland, and and Turkey. So for listeners who might not be that familiar with the recent history of those countries, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about each of them in turn and the kind of what lessons we might draw from each one of those examples. Okay, I'll do that. I'll start out, though, with a little bit of a commonality, which is that all these countries started out with a more robust uh, internal separations of powers regime than we have. That is, they have all sorts of mechanisms to fend off 
overly centralized control of the executive branch, like a council might uh, select prosecutors. And what happened in all these cases is these elected leaders um, secured changes in the constitutional structure to centralize authority over the executive branch, and then they used that power to undo democracy. So, you know, to take it one by one, um, Turkey is uh, Recep Erdogan has been in power for a number of years, and he's started fairly slowly changing the structure. So he had more and more influence over the appointment and removal of executive branch officials um, and weakening uh, mechanisms that had that created multi-party or independence in agencies that are important to democracy, like the prosecution service, the electoral commission, uh, tax authorities, um, and, and others. And uh, then there was a coup in 2016. He took advantage of that to, to seize emergency powers and then started accelerating the purge of independent people uh, from the administration. And with that done, uh, what's been happening in Turkey for some time is a uh, persecution of opponents of the regime and protection of corrupt supporters. Um, and that started out in Turkey with kind of mild stuff where they'd, uh, they'd selectively prosecute opponents for tax and building code violations. But it, it's morphed after the coup into a system where they accuse opponents of, of terrorism violations and put them in prison for substantial periods of time. And the prosecution service goes along with it because it's not independent anymore. It does what the president wants. A similar story uh, took place with respect to Hungary. Um, Viktor Orban came to power as the prime minister in 2010. Uh, he secured the uh, resignation of a very highly respected chief prosecutor, uh, many people suspect by blackmail, and then he got um, parliamentary amendments that changed the constitution. So they got more and more control over uh, the media authority, the electoral commissions and the prosecution service the, and other agencies that are vital for democracy. And the same sort of thing started happening where um, the prosecution service, he purged all sorts of thousands of experts from all the agencies uh, so that everybody became sort of a servant of Orban. And the result is now what, what goes on in, in Hungary is even though there's rampant corruption, there's no prosecution of the government supporters who are quite corrupt. Uh, instead, Viktor Orban accuses opponents of regime, or his prosecution service that he controls, accuses opponents of the regime of corruption. And then they, near, near the time of elections, then after they lose the elections, they just drop the charges because they know they could never sustain them in court. And Poland is um, hit this autocracy. This, this government is not quite as far gone because um, its leader Kaczynski was first uh, came to power uh, just about the same time Trump did. So it hasn't had as long a period. It all takes it takes a period of time for this process to destroy a democracy. Oh, I forgot to mention, Orban seized emergency powers just a couple of weeks ago and established a full-blown dictatorship as sort of the culmination of this process after 10 years of eroding uh, the rule of law through decentralized control. 
Um, respect to Kaczynski, he started to do the same thing. He started to threaten political opponents of prosecution. Uh, he's been forced to back away in a number of cases, but he said he's, he's imitating Orban. Um, the media authority is completely under his control. And like the media authorities in all these other countries, it's kind of tilting the media landscape sharply toward the regime. In Hungary and Turkey in particular, public broadcasting is really important. And they've turned them into full-blown propaganda outlets for the government. So it's been a pretty, the centralized control has really uh, undermined the fairness of elections, the rule of law, and uh, the um, ability and the the functioning of the press. Mm. Well, so in the comparative study that you did, did you notice commonalities in terms of the strategies or tactics that uh, kind of budding autocrats, I guess you might say, used in order to seize and consolidate power? Or did they sort of use different means depending on the nature of the particular government in question? There, there are significant commonalities, but on details, they vary, okay? So like one commonality is they all um, persecute their opponents and give their supporters a free pass. So there is no rule of law, even though it looks like law is being enforced. Uh, how they do that differs, okay? Um, second, um, they all tilt the electoral playing field in favor of the ruling party, there's a lot of commonalities in that. Um, they all use partisan gerrymandering as part of the technique. Uh, they all tend to, um, in Hungary, there's quite a bit more use than maybe in other places of making it hard for regime support, regime opponents to vote and easy for supporters uh, to vote. Um, there's somewhat different techniques that get used, but in all cases, there's a tilting of the electoral playing field and the and the electoral commissions are captured to a degree at least and they end up supporting that process a third commonality is um the tilt the uh, shrinking of the public space for dissent it's it's quite it's gone extremely far in hungary and turkey and in all those cases it started out not with uh jailing journalists or anything gross like that it started with economic pressures where they uh, through licensing, libel suits, fines, uh, fate, spending government money to help their friends and withholding money to hurt their enemies, they consolidated the control of the media in the hands of their supporters. And only, and, and only uh, in Turkey have they gone as far as jailing journalists. And that was a fairly late development where that became common. But the commonality is this economic pressure as a means of sharply tilting the media landscape so it's almost all in favor of the ruling regime. Mm. Well, you'll pardon me because this this question calls for a little bit of, of speculation, but I couldn't help but wondering, you know, when you looked at these three different examples, did you see what happened in each of these countries as sort of the culmination of a long-term plan that was there from day one or more of kind of a plan that developed in relation to the sort of accumulation of executive power and the withering away of oversight? Uh, yeah, it does call for a lot of speculation. I, I don't have a clear answer to that. I would say that these folks look at each other's uh, 
moves and, and are aware of them and sometimes copy them. And that's a little frightening because if you think about what President Trump is doing, he's praised these guys. And a lot of things he's done emulates these sort of the tactics that especially Viktor Orban has used, but also some of the others. Well, so in the United States, we still seem to have a relatively robust democratic system, at least for the for the time being. But you you point to some uh, troubling historical analogs and some not so historical analogs to some of the phenomena you discuss in other countries. I wonder if you could reflect on some of those and sort of what they mean in the context of thinking about democracy in relation to executive power? Uh, sure. Well, before diving into the history, I, I, I'd like to say, just say that I think we underestimate the extent to which the rule of law is already pretty much gone in the executive branch of government in the United States at this point. Um, and we also maybe underestimate the extent to which our electoral processes are already tilted um, it's not completely gone. It's not quite where Hungary and Turkey are, but it may be as far gone as Poland. But in, in response to your question about the history, if you look back, what you see is that um, centralization of control over the executive branch and moves toward unitary executive theory have often, and particular removal for political reasons, have often been used to subvert the rule of law um, and even to tilt elections. And uh, an early example of this uh, was President Jackson's effort to defeat the National Bank um, when he couldn't, the law didn't, hadn't quite gone into effect to get rid of the National Bank that he wanted. So he wanted to accelerate it. And so he fired uh, Secretary of the Treasury uh, because he wouldn't remove the bank deposits because he thought the law required him to keep the bank deposits there until there was a legal change. And so you moved him, put another opponent of the National Bank in. But that guy, too, didn't think it was legal. So they removed him. And there was finally a censure and a compromise worked out. The same thing happened with Andrew Johnson at the end of the Civil War. Johnson um, was Lincoln's vice president. And he was a white supremacist. He wanted to uh, stave off the uh, liberation of black people and giving them voting rights and so on. And so he was fighting Reconstruction tooth and nail. And so the Senate went back and did what Hamilton said they could do, the Congress, and they passed a bill that said, you can't remove people without our consent. And then when um, Johnson responded by removing the Secretary of War, it was clear that the idea of this was to defeat the uh, enfranchisement of black voters and the creation of full civil rights for blacks. and. Uh, the Congress responded by impeaching him. They impeached him and they came within one vote of removal. Um, so there was a fight, again, it was under that was about the question of whether Congress gets to control the law or whether the president can just make up law on his own. It's different. So both those cases are about that. And then Nixon and the Watergate thing is also an effort to use political firing this time to subvert elections, not only the rule of law. Because you remember the Watergate burglary, where they tried to get documents from the Democrats, and they're also ordering tax audits of the Democrats, that all of that was aimed at getting dirt so they could tilt the electoral playing field. And when the Watergate 
uh, burglary was discovered and being investigated, um, Trump started firing Justice Department officials who wouldn't get rid of the the uh, the, spe- the uh, independent counsel or the special the special counsel Archibald Cox, and so he fired people in order to derail an investigation into his effort to tilt the electoral playing field. So in retrospect, it's pretty clear that firing uh, officials can be used uh, for political reasons. There's no protection of them, can be used to subvert the rule of law and to tilt the electoral playing field uh, toward uh, the current occupant of the White House. Hmm. Are are we seeing President Trump making any of those kinds of moves? Uh, Definitely. President Trump has asked... um, the Justice Department not to investigate Republicans when when they suspect corruption because hurt their electoral chances. He's asked them to investigate Joe Biden, John Kerry, um, Oakland Mayor Libby Schaaf, James Comey, all of his many of people he sees as his opponents. He wants them to either jail them or investigate them or elect them. And if you think about what's going on, what went on with the Ukraine affair, first Trump asks. Um, the Justice Department to investigate Joe Biden. So far as we know, the Justice Department does not announce an investigation. So he doesn't do what Orban tries to get done. Now, so he's imi- this looks like an imitation of Orban, because that's what Orban does. He gets an announcement of an investigation to sideline an opponent. So he turns to Ukraine and uses military assistance to try to get the Ukraine government to announce an investigation of Biden. It doesn't matter whether it it's uh, actually fulfilled. The mere announcement, an Orban's a technique, can have effects. Uh, and that's what triggered, of course, the impeachment of Trump. But as we all know, he wasn't removed for that. So uh, and now he's breaking down the rule of law by firing inspectors general for the offense of following laws. I mean, Michael Atkinson is required to, by the law to submit the whistleblower complaint to Congress. And he gets fired for that. That sends a real strong message to everybody in the federal government that if you follow the law in defiance of Trump's will, you'll be fired. That is a big move toward establishing the end of the rule of law and the creation of autocracy. Mm. Well, so it, it goes without saying that you think implementing the unitary executive theory would be unwise. Um, but but I wonder if you would go further than that. I mean, are there things you think we ought to be doing to promote oversight of the executive branch and prevent executive overreach and the potential for these kinds of autocratic problems to develop? Yeah, well, you know, Cass Sunstein proposed uh, a statute to make the Justice Department independent. So you could only remove the attorney general for cause and some of the prosecutors. I think that'd be a really good idea. I think presidential supervision of prosecution is a time bomb waiting to happen. Uh, currently, our electoral commission um, and our, you know, the Federal Election Commission, the FEC, and the Federal Media Authority, the FCC, are independent. And we need to preserve that. But I think we need to, um, you know, we need a lot of oversight here. Um, and we need the Senate to step up because uh, part of this is the Senate can keep uh, opponents of the rule of law for coming into office, but it's abandoned that. But I think, I think in fact, we need more for cause removal protection. 
I think for, if, if you say you can remove them for cause, the president has ample tools to, to um, rein in a federal official who's abusing his authority. But the only reason to have removal with no cause is for political reasons. And there's just too much risk that those political reasons uh, can be uh, about entrenching the uh, occupant of the office in power or even subverting the rule of law. Mm, well, David, I mean, in closing, I, I mean, I, again, I found the paper really fascinating and somewhat terrifying. But I, I mean, I imagine that some people might respond that, well, at the end of the day, really, these are all kind of political questions or political issues and question whether kind of formal limitations on executive power can really practically achieve a sort of meaningful defense against autocracy. I mean, how would you respond to that kind of more cynical take on what's going on? I mean, can, can we really expect kind of structural features of a government to help prevent the kind of abuses that we see in places like Hungary, Poland, Turkey, etc.? Um, yeah, I, you know, I address this more thoroughly in the book than I do in the article, actually. So I have a book I'm working on on this. And the answer is that it the political factors are more fundamental, but the legal constraints can slow things down and can give you some, you can slow down the drive to autocracy. Remember, it's a slow process. So if you can keep uh, uh, people in place when there's a drive to autocracy who are going to commit, you know, provide the honest information that Congress needs in order to determine whether to impeach an autocratic president. Um, if you have, uh, an inability to to get the government to pursue your enemies, it's harder to establish an autocracy. You still need ultimate need political checks, but the, the the courts should be part of the solution to the autocratic problem, not part of the cause of autocracy. Mm. Well, David, thanks so much for coming on the show today. It was a really, again, fascinating and frightening paper. And it was a real pleasure to talk to you and learn more about it. And I encourage listeners to check out the paper and look for your book when, when it comes out. Great. Thanks so much. I enjoyed it. First star is for bravery in wartime and in peace. The second for a heart that's strong and true. The third star is for loyalty and taking on the job. Protector of the red, the white, the blue. 
was a five-star general when he was overseas and he led our boys through times as hard as these now he's a five-star president back in washington and we know that what he says he'll do is just as good as done the fourth star is for honesty and always playing fair no matter what the other fellas do the fifth star's for the love he has an understanding too for all the simple folks like me and you And he led our boys through times as hard as these. Now he's a five-star president back in Washington, and he'll make this world a whole lot better place for everyone.